Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Well, good morning. How's everybody feel today? All right, man, you guys brought it this morning. Was not expecting that. Man, you must be as excited as I am about this series that we are in. Uh, Today, we're going to continue on. It's called Renew. And we actually kicked this series off last week. And I made the point that I believe that this series is going to be one of those foundational series here at Bridgepoint. And not because the sermons are going to be super great, all right? So let's just temper expectations here at the beginning. But because I think for years to come, we'll point people back to this series as helping people understand how we at Bridgepoint understand the story of the Bible. Because I think for a lot of people, if you've grown up in church, maybe you've read the Bible, you've led life groups. If I were to ask, what is the story the Bible is telling? A very common response would be, well, the Bible is a story about how people are sinful. And because of our sin, we don't have relationship with God. So he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And he rose again. Anyone who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that he is Lord will be saved and get to spend an eternity with Jesus in heaven. Now, there is a lot about that that is true. I mean, some of that is straight out of Scripture. But the problem with understanding the story of the Bible that way is is a couple things. First off, it's just a very narrow focus of the story the Bible's telling. Like the, The story the Bible's telling is more than about you and me going to heaven when we die. In fact, it's so narrow, probably the best illustration I could think of is imagine that I took you to Yellowstone National Park. I mean, there's so much beauty there. There's so many wonders that we could take in. And imagine I said, listen, I want you to look at this park, but you can only see it through the pinhole in this piece of paper. All right, now, if you were looking through here, would you be able to see Yellowstone? Well, you'd be able to see a little bit of it. I mean, give yourself credit. I mean, unless, unless you don't, you're blind. I don't know. You can see a little bit. But would you see the whole picture? Would you see all the beauty and majesty that's there? No. And the problem is that too many of us look at the Bible like we're looking at Yellowstone through a pinhole in a piece of paper. See, when we think that the Bible is all about getting people into heaven, I think one of the biggest problems with that is that where does it put the focus? On us. Because it's my sin and my relationship with Jesus that gets me to heaven with him forever. And I know people say, but Matt, you don't understand. Like, it really is all about Jesus. And, and, and I get it some, but it really is about Jesus helping me with all my problems. And Jesus helping me overcome my sin. And listen, there's truth to that. But if that's what we think the Bible is all about, then what happens when God doesn't help you with your problems? What happens when you don't get the job? Or or how about this? What happens when you lose your job? Or when the diagnosis comes back that you're positive for cancer? What happens when your marriage falls apart and we think, well, wait a second, where was God? I thought he was supposed to help me. And if we fundamentally think the Bible is about us, then when things don't go our way, we'll be tempted to walk away from our faith because that's not what many people signed up for. Now, aside from that, if we think the Bible is all about getting people out of hell and into heaven, then we really have to question, well, Matt, then why as a church do we spend money supporting missionaries who are building water filtration systems for people who don't have access to clean water? Why do we provide food for kids in Africa? Why do we support a a school in Honduras? Why would we do things like giving hope or serve day here in our community? Because if it really is just about getting people out of hell and into heaven, then nothing else matters. 
Who cares if you have clean water if you don't end up going to heaven when you die? And these are questions that we wrestle with and that I get all the time. But as we're seeing in this series, that the Bible is not a story about how to get you into heaven. It's about how God wants to bring heaven to earth. Now, I'm not great at taglines for series, but if I was going to have one, that one would be it. That the Bible is not about God getting us to heaven, but about bringing heaven to earth. Now, does that have ramifications for us? Did Jesus die for sin? Absolutely. And we're going to talk about all of that. But it's this bigger story that God is inviting us into. Now, I know that raises a number of different questions, which is great because during this series, I'm wanting you to ask questions. There's a phone number on the screen. At any point today, you can text in questions, and we're going to set aside time at the end of each message to answer those. And then this series, we're also allowing you to have the opportunity to raise your hand. We'll have somebody going around with a microphone, and you'll be able to ask a question. Then now we're not going to let you touch the microphone, all right? And it's not because I don't trust you. I just don't trust some of you to give a brief, quick question. I know some people, you got your 40-minute sermon, you want to sneak in there. And by the way, I love long, nuanced conversations, but those are best done like, let's grab coffee together. Let's go get breakfast or lunch. I would love to have those conversations, um, but we want to respect people's time here this morning. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But how we've been looking at the Bible is we've kind of said that really you could look at it as a story in six different acts or six different movements. And we started last week by talking about Act 1, which is creation. Now, we're going to want to give one more caveat before we jump in. Um, this series, more like any other series we've done, is like a Netflix TV show. Now, I don't know if this is a guy thing or just a me thing, but my wife will look at me and say, man, this show looks really interesting. Do you want to watch this? I say, no, you can watch that one without me. And you guys know where I'm going with this. She gets six episodes in and I'm, you know, walking in the room and I sit down for a minute and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And you can pick up on some of the storylines. You're like, well, wait a second, hold on. Who's that guy? And where'd that baby come from? And what's this girl's problem? And my wife is so gracious that at first she pauses it and she kind of gives me the update. But then after a while, she says, you should have watched the first five episodes. I'm not explaining anymore. And man, if you come in in week five or six in this series, like you'll pick up on some of the bigger themes that we're talking about. Absolutely. But I don't have time to recap every week or by the time we get to the end of the series, I'll just have spent 30 minutes recapping what we talked about the last month. And so I can't recap everything. But this morning, I know some people were still recovering from fall break last week. I get it. So this is your one and only time. I'm going to give a quick recap of what we talked about last week during Act 1 and creation. Okay, so you ready to jump in? All right, three of you. That bodes well for how it's going to go this morning. All right, so in the beginning, we get Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And throughout Christian history, this is, there's been a lot of debate around these passages, right? About God creating the world, and is it seven literal days, or was it created over a period of time? And last week, we made the important point that the book of Genesis is an ancient document written by an ancient person to an ancient audience answering ancient questions. And so if we come to any scripture with our modern day assumptions and questions, we will fundamentally miss the point the author is trying to address. To put this another way, 
The author of Genesis is not writing about how scientifically the world was created. The author's trying to answer the question, what is this world? Not how is this world here, but what is this world that is here? And by the way, that's good news for us. Because that means if you believe in a seven-day literal creation, then you can follow Jesus. And if you believe the universe is billions of years old, you can follow Jesus. Because not the point the author is making. And what we saw is that the way Genesis describes the creation of the world mirrors uh, these documents that show how temples were dedicated. In other words, what the author is trying to say is, what is the world it's a temple. It was designed to be a temple where God's presence dwells and his rule is perfect. Because if you were to go into an ancient temple, it was supposed to show people what it would look like if that God was in charge. And so God's original goal for creation is that the whole thing would look like he was in charge. And I've been challenged recently because a lot of times I talk about Genesis 1 and 2 as being this idea of perfection. And there's this theologian that I love, Dr. Timothy Gombas. And, and in fact, I emailed him one time and I got so excited because he emailed me back and he answered my questions. And I got on the phone. And I was like, Bethany, you will never guess who emailed me. She's like, I don't know, Justin Timberlake? Like, like who is it? It's like, Timothy Gombas. She's like, who is that? I was like, one of my favorite theologians. Click. All right. You know, like didn't have time for that. But, but I heard him speaking recently. He said, we got to be careful in Genesis 1 and 2. Not to use language of perfection. Because when we talk about perfection, we get this picture that the world was perfect just as it was, and the whole goal was just not to mess anything up. I, and I don't know if you ever have like older people in your family. Don't raise your hand, okay? But you, when you were a kid, you went to their house, and their house was not designed for kids. It was per, anybody, you can raise your hands. Says, anybody have a relative that ever put plastic over the furniture before you got there? Yeah, right? So you go in those houses and you, you know like the goal is not to mess it up. Like your parents lecture you for 15 minutes before you get there. It's perfect in there and it was not designed for you to be a fool. All right, maybe it's just my parents, but I had that conversation before. But perfection is never the word the Bible uses for creation. Let's see if you can pick up on the word. At the end of day one of creation, the Lord saw it and it was, ooh, you guys have read your Bible this week. After day two, the Lord saw creation and it was, after day three, it was, the fundamental word used to describe creation was good. Like it was teeming with life. There were birds in the sky and animals all over the earth and sea creatures in the water. There's just an abundance of goodness and life. Now, if creation was designed to be a temple, who works in a temple? Priests. And so we talked about this last week where it says, God said, let us make man in our image. And how it doesn't mean that we like physically look like God, but that we are supposed to image God back into the world. And kind of the definition he gives for this is he said he put Adam and Eve in creation to work it and to watch over it. And those Hebrew words for work and watch, they occur together several times in the Bible, but only when referring to priests. So Adam and Eve were the original priests working in the original temple, which meant that Adam and Eve's goal was not to keep creation perfect, but to continue to expand God's goodness and to reflect his goodness into the world. Are you guys tracking so far? 
And by the way, I'm not asking if you agree. My goal in teaching is never to get you to agree with me. I do want to give you a lot of scripture because I want you to show I'm not making this stuff up. But my goal in teaching, in fact, we've really wrestled with this through the years at Bridgepoint because I think for a lot of people, and, and if this is you, I'm going to step on your toes this morning, but a lot of people treat the sermon as the central thing on a Sunday morning. And so if we're 15 minutes late and we miss all the music, as long as we get in there before the teaching, we're okay. Can I just tell you that the teaching, this is not the central thing that we do here. In fact, my goal is not to convince you of something. The, the central thing that we do here on Sunday morning is going to happen after this. It's our time in communion with Jesus. So I say that hopefully to encourage you, if you're 45 minutes late, you're still on time because you haven't missed the time with Jesus. But that's reframed how I approach teaching because I want to teach in a way that challenges, but I also want to teach in a way that gives you something to talk to Jesus about. I want to teach in a way that gives you some things to wrestle through in your time with Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be wrestling through some things. Now that we know that as creation, we're supposed to be imaging God into the world, reflecting his goodness. By the way, that is why we help with water filtration systems and we feed kids in Africa and we build schools in Honduras and we do giving hope and serve day is because we want to reflect God's goodness and expand his goodness. We want to work for the goodness of all people and all creation. Now that was act one. And I wish the story ended there because that would be, honestly, it might be kind of a boring story, but it'd be a good story. But then we get to act number two, which we're talking about today, and that is the fall. All right, and this is not the season that we are in. This is the fall of mankind. And before we kind of jump into the text this morning, I really want to stress to you where I'm coming from. Because listen, I, we're going to talk about some weird stuff today. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about some heavy topics. And because I love you, like, I really, whenever we talk about sin, I want to rush to Jesus, which, by the way, is a great impulse to have. But in the context of this teaching series, we can't talk about sin and immediately jump to Jesus for two reasons. Number one, because then we'd be going from Act 2 to Act 4, and we wouldn't understand the whole Jewish scripture, which we're going to be talking about next week. But, but the other reason is because I think sometimes in my desire to help rescue people, that we don't allow things to sit with us and convict us and to challenge us and for us to deal with the weightiness of the sin in our lives. So understand my heart this morning is not that we want to see God as some judgmental and angry God, not at all. But I do want us to sit in the heaviness and reality of the sin that's present in our hearts. Does that make sense? All right, so having said that, let's go ahead and jump in to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read a few verses, and we're going to spend some time talking about it. Verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked, 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. A couple points to make. The first one is we're talking about trees and fruit. What's going on? Well, if you remember in the garden, there are two trees. There is the tree of life that Adam and Eve are invited to eat from and live forever. Like keep coming back to that tree. Keep getting your life from God. But then there's another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I find it interesting. This is the tree that they're talking about. And Eve even says she looks at it and it's useful for obtaining wisdom. It's this idea that God has placed a choice before Adam and Eve. Who will you trust for wisdom? Will you trust me and have life and reflect my goodness into the world? Or are you going to pick that mantle up for yourself? Do you want to be the one to, to, to determine what wisdom is, what good and evil is? The choice is, do we choose God or do we choose something else? Now, the other thing we have to be honest with about this passage is that there's a woman talking to a serpent. Kind of weird, right? I mean, sometimes we've read this so much that we uh, kind of lose like the oddity of what's going on here. Now, imagine I told you, you know what? I've converted to a new faith. I'd love to have you over to my house to talk about it. And so you come in, we sit down for dinner, and I say, yes, um, the way my text opens up, it says there was a rabbit who spoke to a man and told him to go pluck the plum from the tree in um, Agrabah. I don't know why Aladdin came into my mind, but that's what I did. Now, if you heard that, you would think this dude is psycho, right? Like he's got a talking rabbit, a plum, like what on earth is going on? And so we have to be honest, like, this is a weird passage we have to wrestle with. Like, have you ever thought, like, there's a talking serpent? And not only that, but Eve doesn't seem like it's a big deal, right? Like, like if, if I saw a talking animal, like, let's grant that there's talking serpents. Why is she having a conversation with it? A couple weeks ago, I went out on my back patio, and you guys know those Joru spiders, those big yellow invasive ones? I had two of them that had built these webs out on our back patio, and I was ready to burn the house to the ground, all right? Like, if one of them tried to talk to me, like, it'd be over, right? We're not dealing with that. But here you have a serpent talking to Eve. Why does she not seem bothered or concerned? If you've been at Bridgepoint for some time, we've addressed this before. I actually want to bring even more context to what's going on in this passage. Because remember, this is an ancient Jewish document. And their conception of how the world worked is that just as God created Adam and Eve to be his images in the material world, he also created these spiritual beings that would rule on his behalf in the, the spiritual world. In fact, these um, spiritual beings were called Elohim, which is oftentimes in our um, Bible translated as gods or sons of gods. And, and if you read in the Hebrew, God is always referred to as El Elohim or the, the God of the gods or the most high God. And the idea is that there is this divine council, this divine assembly that God has that he talks to and he wants to rule in the world through them. They're going to rule and reign on his behalf. Now, probably the clearest example we see this is in Psalm 82. So I want to read that, and then we can talk about it. Psalm 82 starts like this. God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. That's the Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. They do not know or understand. 
They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Rise up, God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Now, in this passage, we get a picture of God assembling his divine counsel. And then he starts to get on to them. Have you ever been in a staff meeting where your boss just starts laying into you? This is exactly what's going on here. Guys, why aren't you caring for the needy? What about the poor? What about the fatherless and the widow? Like, you aren't doing the things I created you to do. And so guess what? Because of that, you're going to die just like the humans. There's such an important point because sometimes people will say, well, this divine counsel is actually talking about human kings, but that's not the language it uses. He says, you are gods, but now you're going to die like humans. You'll be dethroned like any other rulers. It's this idea that there is a divine counsel that God created to rule spiritually on his behalf. Again, are we tracking so far? Not asking for agreement, just asking we understand. Now, what on earth does this have to do with Adam and Eve? Well, throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, we get a picture, several different visions of what's going on in this divine assembly. And in there, there's several different creatures. Some of them are the cherubim, which a lot of our imaginations of what angels look like come from that. Uh, But then there's also seraphim. And in Hebrew, that actually translates to fiery serpent. And their um, description, they have wings. All right, so I know it's, it's October, so it's officially spooky season, I am told. But if you were told you get to go into God's presence and you see flaming, flying serpents, all right, you might think you took the wrong turn somewhere because that's not what I thought that was going to look like. But the idea is that if creation is God's temple, and in the temple you have his images. By the way, that's why in Genesis 1 when God says, let us make man in our image, a lot of times as Christians we're like, oh, the Trinity, Remember, Jewish people have an answer for that too. They said, no, that's the divine council. God's talking to these spiritual beings. Hey, just like you guys rule and reign on my behalf, guess what? We're going to make them to do the same thing. So wouldn't all of these images be in the temple working, watching, ruling on God's behalf? And if that's the case, then perhaps Eve has seen this flying serpent before. And she's seen the serpent leading in worship. This is someone that she feels like she can trust. And and as they begin this conversation, it doesn't seem like somebody she shouldn't be talking to. But as we're reading this, we immediately know something is off because the serpent asked the questions, did God really say this? Which is interesting because it appears now that the serpent is not imaging God, but is actually doing something else. He's not coming to help Adam and Eve. He's coming to throw them off track. And a lot of times this um, serpent is, is referred to as Satan, as if that's a proper name. Satan is not a proper name in the Bible. In fact, it's always the Satan, or actually the Satan, which means the accuser. Because everywhere the enemy goes, he's making accusations. Did God really say that? Are you sure about that? Like, you really think that you could do that? You really think there's always accusing And what's fascinating to me is the way that that the Satan comes to Eve is the same way that he attacked Jesus. It's the same way he attacks us, and that's through our thoughts and in our minds. He comes to Eve and says, well, did God really say that? When the accuser faces off with Jesus, said, well, just turn these stones into bread. Just throw yourself down. 
Just worship me. And I think a lot of times when we think about spiritual warfare, we think of demonic possession and all this other stuff. But can I tell you that oftentimes spiritual warfare is a battle of the mind because he wants to get in your thoughts because your thoughts become actions. And here's the thing. It is not wrong to have a thought. Can I just like put your mind at ease? Because I grew up in the days of like purity culture. And if you ever looked at a woman and had a thought about her, you were going straight to hell. Like it is not wrong to look and to say, man, that woman is beautiful. It is not wrong to say, man, what would it be like to have that house? It is not wrong to have those thoughts. Because guess what? The accuser is always going to attack you with thoughts. But the problem comes when we start to marinate on those thoughts. Because the problem for Eve is that she began to have a conversation about these thoughts with the accuser. And how many times we start and say, man, that's a beautiful person. I wonder what it would be like if they were my spouse. It would be like if we held hands, if we kissed, if we were together sexually. And all of a sudden you have what was just a simple thought. You start to marinate on it and ruminate on it. And all of a sudden it leads you down a path where ultimately it ends in action. Like nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm going to have an affair today. Nobody wakes up one day, says, you know what, I'm going to murder somebody today. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what, I'm going to be a racist today. No, no, it's all of these thoughts we ruminate on. And over time, if we do not guard our thoughts, then sin will begin to take hold. And so the battle is always in our minds. And see, here's the thing. We talk about sin a lot of time. Sin is a result of idolatry. What do you mean, Matt? Because aren't idols like little statues that you worship in your house? No, no, no. Idolatry is when we image anything other than God. We were created to image God and reflect his goodness in the world. And in fact, Adam and Eve were told that they were to rule over all other created things. Let me ask you a question. Was this serpent a created thing? Yes. And so all of a sudden, the thing they were supposed to rule over, now they're imaging him, and he is ruling over them. It's turned all of God's design and flipped it on its head. And that's what happens to us. We become guilty of imaging other things into the world. And what do you mean, Matt? I think for some of us, it's, it's money. Hey, we're going to image our financial success. And by the way, the enemy is so good because he has this conversation. And, and as he does, Eve starts to notice all the good things about the tree. Well, the tree looks good. And I'm sure it's, it's nutritious. And you know what? It is good for obtaining wisdom. Doesn't God want me to have wisdom? I mean, having a lot of money, that's good, right? Because then I could bless people. You know, and so, so I just need to take care of myself for the next few years and I need to store up all this and, and then, then I'll do what God has asked me to do. And all of a sudden you're imaging financial success into the world. You say power, like if I could just get that position and that influence and then people would listen to me and then I could be a voice for God. Then I could really influence things. And so if I have to do a few shady things here or there to get it, it's okay because in the long run I'm going to use it to, to serve God. You're imaging power into the world. How about family? See, that's the thing. It's not that fruit was bad, but the Adam and Eve were just told, don't eat that one. And so what the enemy wants to do is he wants to take things that are good, and he just wants to flip your priorities. Hey, your family is good. But if you start to image your family more than you image God, it's an idol, and sin's taken hold. Listen, work is good. But if you start to image your career and success more than you image God, sin takes hold.
Listen, sex is a beautiful gift that God has given us. But if you begin to image that into the world instead of God, sin takes hold. See, sin is always a result of idolatry. And what Eve does and what Adam does is they start to image the serpent instead of God. Sin takes hold. In fact, the way the Bible talks about sin is not like this arbitrary rule that was broken. No, because sin is actually a creature. It is something that is at work. And the very next story in the Bible is Cain and Abel. And these are two brothers, and Cain is frustrated, and he's mad, and he's bitter that his offering's not being accepted. And he gets the warning, sin is crouching like a lion. It's ready to devour you. See, sin wraps its, its claws around us and holds us to the very thing that we're imaging, right? So pornography addiction holds us to lust, right? Like, like our greed is what holds us to imaging money. Does this make sense? And so sin keeps us captive to things. And some of you are here today and you know what that feels like. You've tried so many times to get free, to get over this. You thought it was in the past and it keeps rearing its ugly head because sin tries its best to keep you pulled back to the very thing that you are imaging. And so what God is facing out of the result of this is not that Adam and Eve broke some arbitrary laws. Like sometimes we get this picture of God, like he's got all these rules and if you said a cuss word, then you're going to hell. Right? Like, like that's how we present the gospel sometimes, right? Have you lusted? Yes, then you're an adulterer and you're going to hell. Have you lied? Yes, you're a liar and that means you are going to hell. Like we'll go through this whole list of things. That's not the point. That's dealing with the symptom and not the actual problem. The problem is that we're imaging other things and now sin has kept us from being who God has created us to be. The problem that God is facing in scripture is not trying to get immoral people to be moral. It's not trying to get bad people to be good. It's trying to set us free from sin so we can be the images he created us to be. Does that make sense? All right. I have one more point I want to make, but before I do, I do want to throw it open to questions. We'll start with text in questions. Let's go ahead and see if we got any of those. Does God have a divine counsel now? Fantastic question. Um, the short answer is yes. Um, I'm going to give you some resources in a few minutes. But even when we get to the book of Revelation, which if you guys remember, we did a whole series through Revelation, how it's not about, you know, here's the Antichrist and this, that, and the other, but it's something totally different. But John gets a vision of God's heavenly throne room. And yes, he has all of these beings are still there. Now, what's fascinating, though, is that throughout Scripture, several times, we see that there's these rebellions. So just like there's a fall and a rebellion for humanity, there's also these spiritual rebellions that happen all throughout Scripture. And one of them is just a few chapters later, where it says, the sons of God, the Elohim, saw the daughters of man, they found them attractive, so they came down, they slept with them, and they had children who are demigods called the Nephilim. And I've said this before, if you YouTube that, you're going to get some of the weirdest, craziest conspiracy theories you've ever heard. But in that culture, every nation surrounding the Jewish people, they believed that their ruler received his power from a spiritual demigod. And so as nations went to war with one another, it was whose God is more powerful. 
And so what the Jewish people were saying is, yes, there was a rebellion in heaven, and so now those forces that are animating the nation, they're actually forces working against God, and we're the nation that is actually being animated by the one true God. So by the way, this is still true today. Like there are spiritual forces at work in this world. That's why Paul says your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And that's why some of us who spend so much time arguing politically, you're arguing in the wrong realm. Like it's not trying to convince the other person to vote like you or to think like you. There are spiritual forces at work. And I'm not trying to get weird or crazy with any of this. But just understand this. There are things going on behind the scenes. And here's this beautiful thing. Right, So the nations are being animated by these spiritual forces, and I believe that right now in our current culture, those spirits sow divisiveness. But the church is a whole different kind of nation, and we're ruled by the Holy Spirit who sows unity. And the spirits of this age want to sow anger and hatred, and the Holy Spirit wants to sow love and justice. The the, the spirits of this age want to sow all of this chaos and disorder, and yet the church is supposed to be a place that looks like heaven on earth. And the problem when we look just like the rest of the world is not that it makes it hard to sell people on Jesus. It's a fundamental failing of the church to be the people God has created us to be. Man, what a great, great question. Uh, I think we have time for uh, one or two more. If you have a question, feel free to raise your hand. We got Keith in the back. He has the microphone, and um, they did a student lock-in just a few days ago, so he might be asleep in the back. I can't really see him there, so uh, if you do have a question, feel free to raise your hand, and if not, we'll sit here in awkward silence. It'll be great. I think they call this vamping in the biz. I hope that's the right word. If I said something offensive or wrong in that moment, I apologize. All right, no other questions. Great. Did an awesome teaching. Nobody has questions. Perfect. Um, I do want to give you a couple recommended resources because, by the way, any of the people are like, oh, man, you know, you're smart. How'd you do it? I'm not smart. I'm just channeling people who are smarter than me. So here's some um, great resources. And these are all, again, like I said last week, I'm giving you popular level resources. These are not academic books that I love to nerd out on. Anybody can pick these up and read them. The first one is The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. And he talks a lot about the divine counsel and everything else. Um, now, I'm full transparency, when I recommend a book, I'm not recommending everything these people say. He has some weird stuff about UFOs. So, you know, I would avoid that stuff. But this is a popular level book of his academic works that across the board are well-respected. And by the way, this is available at the Woodstock Public Library too. So check it out before the person next to you does. The second book, The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright. He is the foremost New Testament scholar in our day. This book, anybody can pick it up and read it. That book is really about what did Jesus do on the cross? And he gets into some of that stuff, but he has a whole chapter laying out how our sin actually prevents us from being the image of God and that that's the problem that we're dealing with. And then of course, I'm, maybe every week I'm gonna give you the Bible Project. I just think it's such a great resource. All of you should have this bookmarked on your phone or on your computer. And there's so many, you could look at the ones on spiritual beings and, and all that stuff. I would encourage you if you have five minutes this week, Go on YouTube, type in the Bible Project Sin. And they just visualize this in such a compelling, easy to understand way. Reminds us that sin is just like these hands that have wrapped around us and have pulled us into these things that we're imaging. We can't get free. Actually goes on to talk about, spoiler alert, you know, I said I wasn't gonna talk about Jesus and we're gonna get to this 
But Jesus does something through the cross and resurrection that sets us free from sin and death. So I think it's so important because we think sometimes like, oh, well, sin and death is just God's way of punishing us. No, no, there's like natural consequences and then there's punishment. And when it comes to sin, like there are times where God steps in and he will discipline us. But there's a lot of times we want to blame God for us just reaping the natural consequences of imaging something other than him. I don't know if you ever drive through the North Georgia mountains or through Tennessee. I hate driving through Tennessee because it's like, it doesn't matter if you're going north to Tennessee or south from Tennessee. I always feel like you're going downhill at like 80 miles an hour. And I'm like, this is like Mario Kart. There's a ramp at the end of this road. I don't know. But you'll get to these curves. You're doing like 70 miles an hour and the curve will be like, take this at 25 miles an hour. I never met a single person who ever took that at 25 miles an hour. But there's a police officer there. They might get you speeding and they'll give you a ticket. Now that's punishment. But the warning is there because if you take that turn too fast, what happens? You flip over and you crash and you burn. And see, that's the reality is that death is like us flipping and crashing. It's the natural consequences to imaging things other than God. The beautiful thing is, spoiler alert, in the last week we're going to see how God does bring heaven to earth. That's the plan eventually. But when he does that, the people who populate it are people who've been free to image him the way we were always created to image him. That's why Jesus came to deal with our sin, to set us free so we could enter into an eternity in his presence in heaven on earth. But I think this morning, we need to take some time to wrestle with this. Because we're going to continue on in worship here through a time of communion. We're going to spend time with Jesus. And as we do, I want to give you two questions to guide your time with him. The first one is this. How am I enslaved to sin? Now, for some of you, this is going to be easy. Because you know you've been passed out drunk on your couch the last five days. You know that alcohol has wrapped its tentacles around you. For some of you, you know what your internet search history looks like. And it's easy to know how you've been enslaved by sin, but I wonder if for some of us, it's pride, it's led to gossip, slander. I wonder if for some of us, it's gluttony. Listen, we're not here to guilt or to shame But if we're faithful to confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive it. And some of us, we have to sit and just say, what what is enslaving me right now? The second question is, what am I imaging other than God? Is it success? What what is the thing that if you were to boil your life down to two or three words, and I hate stuff like that because you really can't, but what would it be? Over this past year, unfortunately, I've been a part of more funerals than I would have liked to have been a part of. And when people get up and they begin to share a word, they can share a lot of things about a person. But at the end of our lives, well, the first thing that people say is, man, he looked like Jesus. And she showed me what Jesus looked like. Or will they talk about our business successes, our financial security, our family? Listen, all those things are great. But if they come before Jesus... We're imaging something other than him. Man, I just believe today, today's a day of freedom. Again, this is not to guilt or condemn. God is not up there just waiting to squish you like a bug. I think he wants us to name this stuff because today he's ready to set some people free.
And it may not be in a moment, but it always starts with the first step. So all across this room, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we just come before you right now. I pray you would open our eyes to see how we've been enslaved by sin. I pray that as your spirit moves, that you begin to pull those things out, put your finger on those things in our hearts. And I pray against the spirit of condemnation. Lord, we pray against the accuser right in this moment. But instead, I pray right now, people would hear your voice, the voice of truth, speaking over them, saying that that you want to set them free. And I pray that as we name these things, they would lose their power. You would break chains. You would break the power that sin has over our life and that we would walk out of this room free to be the images you've created us to be. Pray for every person who's in bondage, broken. We repent of all the things we've imaged other than you. And I pray that in this moment as we draw near to you, Holy Spirit, would you draw near to us and help us become more like Jesus. It's in your name I pray, amen. You can take communion as you feel led. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.